0: Thank you for tuning in to the RPC Sermon Series podcast. You're about to hear a live sermon, which was recorded at our 11 a.m. contemporary service. We are thrilled to share it with you. Thank you for listening. As that amazing children's moment so wonderfully pointed out, for for the past three weeks, we've been following God's prophet Elijah as he's dealt with a terrible drought and been fed by ravens. Then as he sees the people of God limp, choose as to whom they will worship. And last week, we saw him turn back to God as he sought God through the discipline of prayer. And finally, today, in the last of this series of sermons focusing on this great prophet of God, we find our hero, in a place we'd never suspect. He's hiding in the Beersheba desert. So as we prepare for today's sermon, let us join together in prayer. Let us pray. And now may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. May your words be more than only words to us, and we more than only hearers, but doers. In Christ's name, amen. So, as we pick up on our hero story today, Elijah has walked 40 days into the wilderness in the desert. That sort of sounds familiar, doesn't it? But he's walked that far to hide in a cave because he's afraid for his very life. And it's a surprising twist in the story, really, for Elijah's fear and self-isolation comes right after his stirring victory over the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel. Remember that? Jeff briefly mentioned this epic showdown a couple of weeks ago. King Ahab, probably the worst in a line of 19 straight awful kings of Israel and his bride Jezebel, had imported some pagan gods into Israel. And Elijah didn't like it. He didn't like it at all. So, a grand loser leave town death match between Jezebel's gods and God is planned on Mount Carmel in front of all the people, and who knows, probably on pay TV as well. In one corner, you've got the priest of Jezebel's gods, Baal. They're all decked out in their traditional sinister bad guy uniforms. And they dance around and they call on Baal to come down with fire and consume their sacrifice on the altar. Of course, that doesn't happen, no matter how much dancing and cavorting they do. And in the other corner, you've got our hero, Elijah, wearing the traditional home team Presbyterian blue uniform with white cap. he calls upon God to consume his sacrifice after he pours water upon it and whoosh a great fireball immediately falls from heaven and the sacrifice is completely and totally consumed and if that's not enough is a sort of exclamation point which was left out of the children's moment and is left out of most Sunday school curriculums for good reason. Elijah then unceremoniously has the 450 priests of Baal slaughtered, killed, right there on the spot. And Elijah gets a statue for his trouble. It's a monumental victory for God and as Elijah is carried off triumphantly on the shoulders of the people he doesn't announce that he's going to Disney World even though that has become sort of expected after these type of events instead no sooner had Elijah won this great victory than he got another nice note from Jezebel dear Elijah May the gods do to me an even worse than you did to my priest if by this time tomorrow you are not as dead as my priest. Love, Jesse. So instead of celebrating at the magic kingdom, Elijah hightails it for Beersheba, 40 days in the wilderness, and a cave near Mount Horeb to hide. For you see, evil is stubborn. It hangs on tenaciously and fiercely. It's not easily whipped, no matter how glorious the setting or how impressive the victory. Sort of like the shock that came to some folks when they realized that World War I was not the war to end all wars. And, and we ended up with this very weekend We ended up with tomorrow's holiday to remember and honor all those that were lost in that war and the ones before that and the ones after that. A memorial and an importance that's important, but one for which we wish we didn't have as much of a need. For evil is stubborn. It's not easily whipped, like the realization recently brought closer by a particular troubling news story in our very own state that all the civil rights legislation and rhetoric in the world by no means rids our country or all people of prejudice or hatred or injustice or like the person who who prays the words of the Lord's Prayer about forgiving others and then sits down across the table from a spouse with whom there is an unrelenting disagreement, or who is estranged from a child or a parent and simply cannot find the words to say, I'm sorry. For the harsh truth about this world is that we can very quickly slide from the mountain of supreme triumph down the slope of desperation into the valley of despair and hide ourselves. Hide ourselves there in a cave. And that's what Elijah did. He hid. For evil is stubborn. It's not easily defeated. That much is true. But there's another truth as well, and and that is that we can't hide from God no matter how much we try. For God comes to Elijah in that cave and asks him a simple question. God asks, What are you doing here, Elijah? And Elijah says, I'm here because I have been very zealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. For the Israelites have forsaken your covenant, have thrown down your altars and killed your prophets. And I, even I alone, am left. And they are seeking my life to take it away. In other words, he's there because he's feeling sorry for himself. And because he's feeling like he's the only one left Who really cares. And you know I suspect maybe especially lately that this is the very point where Elijah's story and our story most often finds common ground. For most of us don't win great monumental victories for God against other gods in epic showdowns at least not on a regular basis. And I can't think of the last time that I was fed by a raven. But I suspect most of us sometimes at least do feel sorry for ourselves at times. And when it comes to the evil in the world, I suspect many of us do sometimes feel like we're fighting a losing battle. And it's sometimes like we're doing it on our own, like we're the only ones who care. And it's no wonder because in a lot of ways the world we live in is in pretty bad shape. Like the shipwrecked sailor who'd been stranded alone on a deserted island for 20 years. Until finally one day way out on the horizon he spotted a ship. So he hurriedly built a great bonfire and and sure enough soon the ship was dropping anchor and a small boat was being lowered into the water. And after what seemed like forever, the small boat finally made its way ashore, boarded only by one solitary crewman. And as the stranded man ran to the beach to meet the boat, the crewman held out an armful of current newspapers and said to the maroon man, Here, read these. And if you still want to be rescued, build another fire. In many ways, the world is in pretty bad shape. But that's nothing new. In the middle of the last century, Will Durant, the historian and and the writer of the the enormous 11-volume work entitled The Story of Civilization, wrote these words, he said, when people ask me to compare the 20th century to other older civilizations, I always say the same thing. The situation is normal. The world has always been in bad shape ever since we humans first appeared on the scene but that doesn't lessen or take away the problems we face today. In fact, this terrible virus notwithstanding, there are many dire threats to our world and to our very survival. And I think in the middle of this horrible pandemic, it's especially important to remember that even and as terrible and as uppermost in our mind as that is at the moment, the virus is not the only threat we face. For what about the ongoing threats posed by the depletion of the ozone, by global global warming, and by the possible extinction of some animal species? In fact, I read a report last summer, even before all this virus stuff, that, that 150 people showed up for a meeting in a small California town to look for a solution to the rapidly increasing air pollution smog that they were facing in their small community. And then after hearing the ominous reports and looking at the statistics and all signing a pledge to doing everything they could to alleviate the situation, those 150 people got in 127 cars and drove home. Think about that for a minute. We live on a delicate and an increasingly small planet. And we still, as human beings, even after all these years, have not figured out a way to get along with our neighbors in any real meaningful way. The world is in pretty bad shape. And we do face some staggering problems. Elijah was right. And no one-time dramatic show of power against Baal or any other of the pretense gods is going to remedy that, no matter how flashy. But, and this is important, Elijah was also wrong, for there were and there are others, lots of others who care. Elijah wasn't by himself and neither are we. And God reminded Elijah of that by getting him out of that cave and by letting him see God in many powerful and even some ordinary still small ways and god reminds us like that as well for just when we feel down and about having to celebrate our birthday or our graduation or mother's day or or some other special moment alone or or in isolation their friends and family members driving by in cars or leaving gifts in our driveways like 42 rolls of toilet paper for our 42nd birthday or family members standing at our window wearing masks and holding signs wishing us well or folks calling or emailing or whatever to make sure we know that we're not in this by ourselves and just when we think we're on our own or find, uh, uh, to find and see God, we look at the church's website and, and we find the Closing the Distance daily devotionals, which every day remind us of the lessons from Scripture. Or we see our wonderful worship team online singing when we can't sing. And praying on our behalf, and otherwise reminding us of God's love for us, even in our quarantine, even in our isolation. You see, God reminded a scared and hiding Elijah that he was not by himself. And then God sent him off to anoint. Jehu, son of Nimshi, as king over Israel, an anointing that ultimately broke the chain of 19 straight evil, unproductive kings and set Israel back on a proper track. And then God sent Elijah to anoint Elisha to carry the mantle as his successor, to be the next great prophet in Israel, a prophet whose character would be marked and remembered in history as one of peace and mercy and toleration of others and all of these folks and others are individuals who were there and waiting and willing to join Elijah in ministering to a world much in need of God's presence you see Elijah was not alone and neither are we that's God's promise It's a promise fulfilled in Jesus and and told through the years of God's people in God's church. And in his fear and in his self-isolation and in his uncertainty and even in his desperation and despair, that's the promise our hero, Elijah, needed to hear. And maybe it's God's word of promise we need to hear as well. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Almighty God, even where we are in the midst of this pandemic, hiding in isolation in our fear, you are with us remind us of that and remind us that there are others keeping us ever mindful that christ sends us forth even in this to be his hands and his feet in this world in his name amen Thank you so much for listening to the RPC Sermon Series podcast. If you'd like more info about Roswell Presbyterian Church, check out our website at roswellpres.org.